The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. I'm going to read another one, Mark 10, 46 to 51. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Well, if you want to uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, where Nadia read from. Again, if you are using one of those Bibles at the back, uh, if you don't own a Bible, please let that that Bible be a gift to you. We would love for you to take it home and read it. Um, If you are using one of those white Bibles, I believe it's on page 956, but we're covering a lot of territory today, so it's going to be 957 and 58 and onwards. Um, We are resuming a series this morning, which we started last year in July, uh, called Jesus the King where we are walking through, the, uh, we're walking through Mark's gospel, the, uh, the gospel of Mark. Uh, we started this series last year in July, and we spent 11 weeks last year going through uh, the first half of Mark's gospel. And this morning, we are resuming that series uh, from where we left off in Mark chapter 8, and we are picking that up, and we're going to uh, follow along with the second half of Mark's gospel. And um, uh, we're going to be spending eight weeks doing that. It's going to be really wonderful. And then we're going to finish with the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. So as we finish uh, Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that will land, God willing, on Resurrection Sunday. And so we're going to be uh, walking through the second half of Mark's gospel uh, until Easter Sunday. And then after Easter Sunday, we're going to be doing some other stuff. Now, um, one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible is because here as at LCC Caloundra, we highly value God's Word. We want to come to God's Word with our open hearts, open minds, and be willing for God's Word to teach us and to guide us. And so we walk through books of the Bible quite often as our regular diet of teaching, uh, simply because we want God's Word to dictate and determine uh, what we do preach about, what we actually look at. And so that means when we walk through books of the Bible, we often come across some stuff which seems difficult or that we actually might struggle to, to, struggle to actually comprehend. And we are certainly going to find that in the second half of Mark's Gospel. Now, if you were with us for the first half of Mark's Gospel last year, for the first half of the series, you will know, uh, you'll remember that Mark, one of the thing, key things that Mark is really trying to communicate is that Jesus is the King. Jesus is not just a King, but the King. He is the King of Israel, His people. He is the king of the entire world, 
and he is the king of every single one of us. And critical to following Jesus is knowing that he is the king. To be a Christian is to acknowledge and know and believe and trust in and build your, build your life upon the indisputable fact that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He's our Lord, he's our King, and he's our Savior. He's the one who saved us. Now, some people are only willing to accept Jesus as their Lord. They really like doing what Jesus commands them to do. Because by their obedience to him, they feel that they can kind of save themselves by how well they go at obeying Jesus. Those people are accepting Jesus as their Lord, but they are rejecting Jesus as their Savior. Other people have the opposite problem. Uh, they, they accept Jesus as their Savior, but then they don't like it when Jesus tells them how to live their life. They don't like it when Jesus tells them what they should be doing with their life, with their finances or with their marriage or with their houses or whatever it is. Those people are accepting Jesus as their Savior, but they're not accepting Jesus as their Lord. And what's uh, true of every single Christian is that we believe that Jesus is both our Lord and our Savior. Jesus is the one who saved us. We are saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And he is also our King. Which means that for those of us who are Christians, we love it when Jesus tells us what to do. When Jesus commands us things, we get glad about that because we go, yes, Jesus, you're our king. We want to obey you. We want to, uh, we want to do what you've asked us to do. And we do that because of his grace, which he won for us. His grace towards us leads to obedience. And Mark's gospel is all about making sure that we're not just accepting one of Jesus' uh, facets, one, of Jesus, one, one part of Jesus' life and not the other. Therefore, what we're going to find throughout Mark's gospel is that Jesus is going to be incredibly deliberate with us about getting his identity right. If I can give you a quick summary of how that kind of plays out in the first half of Mark's gospel, just to give you a bit of a backtrack. Um, all throughout the first half of Mark's gospel, the first eight chapters, there's this thing that plays out which uh, theologians often refer to as the messianic secret. And it's this weird secret thing that, that Jesus does where he doesn't actually want people to know who he is. And so time and time again, he'll heal somebody. And as soon as they're healed, he'll say, now, don't, don't tell anybody. If you've read the Gospels, you'll see this popping up every now and then. And the reason why is because Jesus doesn't want them to know who he is just yet because they've, they've got the wrong idea of who he is, of, of who the king is. And even actually, if you go through the first half of Mark's Gospel, you'll see that there are times where Jesus casts out demons from people and those demons come out saying, we know exactly who you are, Jesus. You're the son of God. And Jesus tells them to shut up and stop and he doesn't let them, just let them speak. Jesus' Jesus's big thing is he doesn't want people to know who he is. It's this secret. And the reason why is because if they, know, if they think that he's the Messiah, if they think that he's the king, they're going to do something crazy like try and make him their king straight away. They've got the wrong idea of who he is as their king, as their Messiah. And this theme is built up and built up and built up throughout the first half of the gospel. And then, in, in, then critically in Mark chapter 8, 29, the apostle Peter becomes the first person, the first human in Mark's gospel to, to correctly identify and articulate, uh, sorry, articulate exactly who Jesus is. And so this halfway point in Mark, where it gets halfway through that Peter finally says, Jesus, you are the Christ. That's a critical moment in Mark's gospel. 
And so from this halfway point, what we're going to be really discovering over the next eight weeks is Jesus uh, really, not the the secret's over, the, the cat's out of the bag, and now what he's going to do is he's going to allow people to know who he is, but he's going to help them to redefine what that means, that he is the king. You see, the people who came across Jesus had various expectations of what kind of king the Messiah was going to be. The Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, the Son of God, all of those terms generally mean the same thing with a bit of a nuance here and there. And the people were expecting this Messiah to come and remove the the imminent threat of, of Rome's influence over Jerusalem. Rome was the occupying force in that particular area, and so their belief was this Messiah was going to be a general, a, a, a kind of military king, and he was going to come and he was going to remove the Romans from them. And so this is why Jesus doesn't want them to know who he, that he is the Messiah yet, because that's not the kind of king he, he came to be. They thought that this king was going to come and remove all of their problems, and they were right in thinking that, God, that Jesus was going to come and remove their problems, but they were wrong in thinking what those problems actually were. They were wrong in thinking about what they, what they thought their biggest problems were. They thought their biggest problems was Rome. But actually, their biggest problem is sin. What kind of expectations do we have of Jesus? What kind of hopes do we have from Jesus? Whether you've been a Christian for a long time or a short time, you're not, maybe not a Christian at all, and you're, you're here this morning and you're considering it, What kind of things do we hope from Jesus? Or maybe another way we can ask this question or answer this question is, if you could ask God for anything and get a guaranteed yes, what would be the first thing you ask for? What are we hoping for from Jesus? What are we expecting from Jesus? I was talking to uh, one of you this week who, and I won't mention their name just in case they feel embarrassed by this, but they were talking to me about another friend of theirs who fully expected that because she was a Christian that she would win the lottery. This woman's hope and expectation was that because of her hope and expectation of Jesus is that he would solve her financial problems. I had a friend of mine who years ago, uh, he didn't get car insurance because he believed that God would just protect him. His hope and his expectation was that God would never allow him to have a car accident. Now, we might think that's a little bit silly, a little bit hilarious, but actually if we dig, uh, dig down deep enough inside of our hearts, all of us, are going to find some measure of misplaced hope and expectation that we have of Jesus. That hope, that hope and expectation might be a future one, that one day uh, Jesus is going to bless me financially and that all of my financial woes are going to be totally solved because I've, I've, you know, I've served the church every second week and I've prayed so much and I've, I've, done, I've read my Bible and one day God's just going to fully just uh, reward me for all of that in this life now. Or maybe that hope is along the lines of our health and we think to ourselves, God would never allow me to get sick. God would never take a loved one away from me. And the message of today is that Jesus far exceeds our expectations of him. It's a good thing to trust God with our finances. It's a good thing to pray to God about sickness, especially for our family members. But Jesus came to earth and died on a cross to solve a far bigger issue for us. And in that way, he far exceeds our greatest expectations of him. And that's the big idea of today's passage. Jesus far exceeds our greatest expectations of him. So the passage that we're covering today is really quite long. We're going from Mark chapter 8, verses uh, 22 to chapter 10, verses 52. Uh, It's 118 verses in total. 
It's a long passage that we're covering, this, and we're not going to read all of it out because it's just going to take too long. Uh, but the reason why we're taking up such a large chunk this morning is not because we're just trying to gather some speed or just kind of uh, wipe out a whole lot at the same time, but because this whole section of teaching is actually meant to be understood and interpreted as one complete unit of teaching. See, it begins and ends with stories of Jesus healing blind men. These, these are the two passages that Nadia just read out. Now, these uh, healing stories are unique in their own ways, and not only do they tell a story on their own, but they actually point to everything in between these two stories as very, very important. And so we've got to ask the question, is there a unified theme from Mark chapter 8, verses 22, to Mark chapter 10, verses 52? In these, in these 118 verses, is there one unified theme that holds all of these verses together? And the answer is yes. It's really, really uh, exciting to get to teach this this morning. This section of teaching functions as the watershed moment of Mark's gospel. And so since so much of Mark's gospel is about uh, who Jesus is and really getting the right idea of who Jesus is, this section that we're going to study this morning is like a concentrated version of that, like an undiluted version of that. So rather than reading the whole lot out, what I'm going to do is walk you through these 118 verses just a bit at a time. And then we're going to look at the overarching message. So in Mark chapter 8, verses 22, Jesus heals a blind man. It's the two-stage healing where Jesus has two attempts to heal this blind man. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27, uh, Jesus foretells his death, his resurrection, and his suffering for the very first time. And after he foretells this, uh, Peter pulls him aside and rebukes Jesus. He makes a big mistake in rebuking Jesus. And this is where Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in your mind the things of God, but the things of man. From chapter 9, verses 2, uh, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up the mountain uh, where Jesus is transfigured. Javen read that verse earlier this morning, where Jesus is transfigured. Uh, those three guys, they see uh, Jesus talking to, with Moses and Elijah, and then a cloud comes down, and a voice comes from the cloud, uh, and it's the voice of God booming from the clouds, which says, this is my son, listen to him. From chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus heals a, a boy with an unclean spirit. The father had brought this boy to his disciples. The disciples couldn't heal him, and then Jesus comes along and heals him. And this is where uh, that, that father famously said, I believe, help my unbelief. From chapter 9, verse 30, Jesus foretells his suffering, his death, and his resurrection again for the second time, after which his disciples make another huge mistake where they have a huge argument about who among them is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. From chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus spends some time teaching his disciples about sin. And this is where Jesus teaches them, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Very intense teaching. From chapter 10, verses 17, we get the famous interaction between Jesus and the rich young man. And then from chapter 10, verses 32, Jesus foretells his suffering, death, and resurrection for a third time. And again for a third time, his disciples make a huge blunder. James and John come to Jesus and they say, Hey Jesus, can you grant us this one favor? Can one of us sit at your right hand and one of us sit at your left hand? And then that is finally finished up in chapter 10 verses 46 with a passage that Nadia read out, Jesus healing another blind man, a man named Bartimaeus. So that's the whole general view of what this section is teaching, uh, bookended by these two matching stories about Jesus healing, healing blind men. Now, the first story that we have of Jesus healing a blind man is unique. 
It's unique in all of the healings because this is the only time ever that Jesus has to try twice to heal somebody. After the first attempt, the man could, could see only partially. People looked like trees walking around, like he couldn't really tell the difference between a person and a tree. And so Jesus has a second crack. And then he's able to see clearly. And Mark is using this two-stage healing to describe the spiritual blindness of Jesus' disciples. You see, they had a pretty good idea about who Jesus was. Peter had just announced uh, that Jesus was the Christ. He's the first person to ever say, you are the Christ. And then a few moments later, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like, he goes, Peter goes from the top of the world to the bottom of the world. The most ridiculous, harsh insult that anybody's ever received from Jesus was given to Peter that day. And so Mark's using this story to illustrate the spiritual blindness of the disciples. They had a bit of an idea of who he was, but they couldn't see him clearly. Their idea of who Jesus was was contaminated by false expectations of what they expected from him. This is why Peter rebuked Jesus. This is why James and John asked Jesus to sit at his left and his right. This is why the disciples had a huge argument about uh, who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. The second healing story in Mark chapter 10 is unique because here we get the man's name who was healed. His name is Bartimaeus. Now that's not super, uh, it's a bit rare. And more often than not, actually, whenever we get someone's name in the Gospels, like Bartimaeus, who got healed, the reason why is to bolster up the authenticity of the Gospel. So that Mark's readers, when they read this, could actually go and find Bartimaeus and say, hey, can you tell us what happened here? And Bartimaeus would be able to describe exactly what happened there. This healing of Bartimaeus concludes this section of teaching because not only did Jesus heal him immediately, but we're told that Bartimaeus began to follow Jesus along the way. Even after Jesus said, you're healed, now go your own way, Bartimaeus decided to follow Jesus along the way. And that word way is vital. Following Jesus along his way is synonymous with discipleship. It's another way of designating one of Jesus' disciples. So here is a way that we can sum up the teaching. Disciples are those who see Jesus clearly and follow him along his way. Disciples are those people who see Jesus clearly and follow him along the way. And just in case you're wondering, uh, I don't believe that there is any difference between a Christian and and a disciple. You can't become a Christian and not be a disciple of Jesus. And so it just won't do to have a fuzzy picture of who Jesus is because we won't be able to follow him. Jesus really, really wants us to know who he is and have the right idea of who he is. Because he knows that if we don't have the right idea of who he is, then following him is going to be disastrous. And also, because who Jesus actually is always far exceeds our expectations of who he is. And so that's what this passage is going to teach us through the story of the blind man. The disciples had a bit of an idea about who Jesus was, but they couldn't see him completely. In order to follow Jesus along his way, they needed to be able to see him clearly in his word. This is what disciples need to have. And so we're going to ask the text two questions this morning. Two very simple questions. Who is Jesus is the first question. And the second question is, how has he made himself known? Who is Jesus and how has he made himself known? So who is Jesus? Well, Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that's a, the Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, the Christ is the title king or anointed one or son of God. 
He wants us to know that, that Jesus is the Christ, the one who had been prophesied to lead God's people. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus is all about fulfilling that role of being the Christ and redefining what it means to be the Christ. And so what kind of king is Jesus? Well, first of all, we learn that he's the divine king. Jesus isn't just a human being who said and did great things and then died on a cross. The Bible is abundantly clear that Jesus is actually God incarnate, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Jesus is just as much God as God the Father and God the Spirit is, and yet he is distinct in his personhood from the two. And if we look at the transfiguration, we, we see three things that point to this. Actually, four, but I'll just say three for this morning. On the mountaintop, with Peter, James, and John, Jesus undergoes this thing that, he called, that Mark calls the transfiguration, where somehow Jesus became just incredibly bright. His clothes became whiter than you could ever bleach them. He was, he was uh, filled with resplendent glory. It kind of reminds us of Isaiah 6. When, when Isaiah goes into the throne room of God and sees the glory of the Lord, these guys, Peter, James, and John, they see the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ. He, he becomes bright, almost like he becomes his true self there. The second thing we're told is that while they were there, the disciples saw Jesus talking with, uh, with Elijah and Moses. Now, we don't have time to go through all of the ins and outs of what that actually means, but we're seeing that he's divine because of whom Moses and Elijah actually represent. You see, God spoke the law to the Israelites through Moses, and then God spoke through the prophets whom Elijah represents here. And so here, uh, because God spoke to, spoke to his people through Moses and the prophets, we now see Moses and the prophet Elijah being summoned to come and speak with Jesus, thus putting Jesus in the same position as the Father. This passage is telling us that Jesus is actually the same God who speaks to his people. The third piece of evidence that we get here is that while they were there, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And if you go back and look at when God is first revealing who he is to, um, to his people in Exodus and in, and in uh, Leviticus, um, you'll see that they actually uh, uh, cloud comes down from heaven and descends upon the place of meeting and God speaks to Moses and sometimes Aaron through the cloud. And so here we see that this, Mark has painted this picture. Jesus is actually God. He's the divine king. He actually is God. He's not just a person. He's the divine king. Now, what's the significance of that? Why does that actually matter to us? Well, if Jesus is God then he's the same God in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament as he is today. Which means that Jesus' words to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, uh, carry the same amount of authority and weight that God's words do in Leviticus or Ezekiel. You see, we often have this uh, really tragic way of thinking about the God of the Old Testament, this cranky old guy, doesn't like people, he's, pedant he's pedantic and he's, he's always just frustrated people. And then the God of the New Testament is Jesus, and he comes in, he's much cooler. He's, he, he finds a way to, to pacify the God of the Old Testament and just kind of get him to calm down a little bit, and then he just tells everybody that he loves him, and that's basically how it goes. There's nothing about that in the Bible. That's, that's a lie from our culture. There's nothing that tells us this. And in fact, if you want to see some harsh teaching from Jesus, just read Mark's Gospel. We're going to actually go through some of it. I mean, we just mentioned before. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. That's not Jesus saying, I love everybody. Everything's great. 
he's, he's, he gives us harsh teaching, hard teaching. To look at who Jesus is is to look at who God is. To study the words of God in the Old Testament is to study the very words of Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate. He is the very imprint of his nature. If we want to know who God is, we've got to look at Jesus. The second thing we learn about Jesus, we, we've just learned he's, a, he's the divine king. Now we learn that he's the sovereign king. During the transfiguration, uh, God speaks to Peter and James and John. He says from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now we've got to ask, do we listen to Jesus? Do we obey him? Are we okay with Jesus being our sovereign king and telling us what to do? You, you see, Christians are those people who are glad when Jesus tells us what to do and how to live our lives. This means, this is what it means that, uh, that it, Jesus is our Lord and our King. It means that he is the authority to tell us what to do. And Christians are people who, are, who gladly receive what Jesus tells us. Sometimes it's hard and it's tough, but we're glad when Jesus tells us what to do and we obey him. Now, the idea of Jesus having authority over, over our lives puts Christianity uh, at, a, at a collision course with our culture. Our culture says, uh, you are autonomous. You are the king of your own life. You're the sovereign one. You decide what's right for you. You decide what's true and, not, and what's not. You decide what's good for your life. And here we have the Bible saying the opposite, saying, no, no, you don't get to do that. Jesus does that. Jesus is our Lord and our King and our Savior. Jesus is the sovereign King. And if that's true, if that's true that Jesus is our King and he is the divine King, then the Bible, all of the Bible, becomes the authoritative voice in our lives because all of the Bible are the very words of Jesus. And a Christian is someone who gladly receives the authoritative words of Jesus into their own life. You see, for a Christian, obedience isn't just a part of their life that they come to every now and then. Obedience permeates their life. Now, we might ask, well, what about grace? What, like, you're talking all this stuff about obedience. What about grace here? And yes, absolutely, we believe in grace alone. But we don't believe in grace that remains alone. And I'll say what I said last week. If you believe in the kind of grace that doesn't lead to obedience, then you have believed in a cheap and nasty version of the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace that doesn't lead us to obedience isn't grace at all. So why should we obey Jesus? Well, we should obey Jesus because of what he demonstrates to us in his teaching in Mark 9. Let me just read to you verse 43 for a moment. Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. See, what he wants us to see here is that his plans for us are vastly better than our plans. Four times in this little section here, Jesus says, it would be better. It is better. This is why we sang that song this morning, Jesus is better. If we can stop and let Jesus be our Lord and our Savior, then when he says something like, it would be better, we should listen. Suppose I decided, I'm going to, uh, as a pastor, I'm going to have a crack at some other profession. I'm going to go to Javen's worksite. Javen's a carpenter. I'm going to go to Javen's worksite. I'm going to be like, hey, mate, give me the tools. I'm going to build this house. I reckon I could do this. I've had a bit of a crack at it before. I can have a bit of a crack at it now. And I start just nailing things to whatever and just stuffing things up. 
Javen would have every authority, every piece of permission to come to me and say, hey, Jimmy, it would be better if you didn't do that. It would be better if you didn't actually uh, nail that into that. That's a PowerPoint. You shouldn't nail things into PowerPoints. That's a stupid idea. Javen being the one who's smarter than me, who has a bigger perspective than me, who has more training than me in this area, would be able to say, hey, don't do that. Or maybe I went to Rachel's workplace. Rachel's an accountant. And I just started typing away on the computer, just adding things together, and it's like, wee, this is fun. Rachel would say, hey, Jimmy, it would be better if you didn't do that. It would be better if you left my office, actually, and got away from my computer. This is why you're even here. Roy's a pharmacist. I mean, that's a disaster waiting to happen, right? Here, everybody have some Sevlon. Sevlon for everybody. That's going to solve everything. Like, that's the only thing that came to my mind. Panadol as well. If we come to the Bible like this, if you come, can we see that Jesus is actually doing the very same thing for us here? See, why are Jesus' plans better than our plans? Because his plans aren't small and insignificant like financial security, good health, having the right career or finding the right spouse. We get so worked up on having these things and we toil and we stress and we worry. And here is Jesus talking about something far bigger, saying it is better. Do you see what he's teaching us about? Jesus is teaching us about heaven and hell and eternity. Jesus is talking about rescuing us from our sin, which carries with it the eternal punishment of suffering in hell. And Jesus says... It's better for you to enter life, enter heaven, a cripple, than hell with two hands. That's intense, right? Like, we, we've got to admit, that's intense. And just so we know, he's not at all saying that the way to eradicate sin from our life is by cutting off your hands. I'm not condoning that at all. But he's saying that sin must be fought. We have to put it to death. To quote John Owen, we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And Jesus is pointing, point, pointing to sin as a far bigger issue in our lives than anything else we could come across. He's saying that a lifetime of never being able to use your hands is better than eternity in hell. And here we are worrying about the housing market. Here we are worrying about what shade of white we should paint our walls. Now, is, are those things unimportant? No, they're not unimportant. They are very important. But they should always be held uh, in comparison with our biggest issue, which is our sin, and the greatest remedy for that issue, which is Jesus Christ. That is the biggest issue in our lives. The biggest issue in our lives, and I say this confidently, the biggest issue that any of us have faced this week is the sin in our lives and its eternal consequences. So when the one who has dealt with our sin calls, to follow, calls us to follow his plans, we should listen because he's the sovereign king. He's the one who can actually deal with our sin. The third thing we learn about Jesus is that he's the servant king. He's the divine king, he's the sovereign king, and now he's the servant king. As I mentioned earlier on three occasions in this section, Jesus predicts his own death. And in each of these times, he mostly says the same thing. He says he's going to suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, and the, Pharisees, and, the, uh, and the elders. And then he's going to rise again three days later. Now, just as a freebie, if Jesus foretells three times 
that he's going to suffer and die and then after three days walk out of the grave. That's one thing. But then to actually go and do it, that's a whole other thing altogether. And that's what we're going to be celebrating at the very end of this series on Resurrection Sunday. That Jesus walked out of the grave. He completely demolished death. He completely destroyed death. And that's worthy of our, of our lives being handed over to him in reverent worship. But there is one thing about each of these times that he predicts his own death that is different and unique each time. In chapter 831, and the first time he predicts his death, he says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. In other words, those who were meant to welcome him and accept him have been rejected. He's totally alone. In chapter 9, verse 31, he says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. In other words, he's going to make himself totally helpless, totally vulnerable, being pushed around and shoved around and handed over by the people that he created. And then in chapter 10, verse 30, 34, he says that they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. In other words, he's going to be totally humiliated. You see, when Jesus talks about his suffering and death, he talks about it in the saddest ways possible. Totally alone. Totally helpless, totally vulnerable, totally humiliated. One of the things that is just so wonderful about Jesus is that he doesn't shy away from the tough topics. Feeling alone, feeling helpless, feeling vulnerable, feeling humiliated, those are real human emotions. And Jesus went through all of them on our behalf. He experienced the pain and the turmoil of our sin, not just physically, but emotionally too. And when we're feeling that way, we know that we've got Jesus Christ by our side and in our heart, and he knows what we're going through. He knows what we're experiencing. He's been through that himself. We've got Jesus beside us. He can sympathize with us on our deepest and darkest days. We're not alone because Jesus Christ has gone through this for us first. You see, Jesus' victory as king over his enemies wasn't about tossing a foreign power out of his beloved country. Jesus having victory over his enemies wasn't about silencing, silencing the religious powers of the day. Jesus' victory over his enemies was about crushing sin, eliminating guilt, and covering shame. The thing that Jesus predicted three times did, did come to pass. At the cross, Jesus did suffer and die. He was nailed to a cross. And do you know what? Our sins were nailed there too. Past tense. Our sins have been nailed to the cross already. Like the beautiful hymn says, My sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought, my, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. At his resurrection, Jesus rose from the dead. He triumphed over death. Jesus, at his resurrection, killed death. This is the wonderful truth of the gospel that for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, their record of sin was nailed to a cross with Jesus Christ, never being brought up again. Can we imagine such a thing? 
can we imagine our record of debt being nailed to a cross and never being dealt with again, never being brought up again by the, by the God of the universe, the judge of every living soul? He did this because he loved us. It cost him absolutely everything to do us to do that, and yet he, he did that so he could have us, to make, him, make us clean. He made us clean. He died on the cross to make us clean, to wash us clean, so he could have us and we could be restored to him. Not just cleared of guilt, but actually restored in righteousness to the throne. To be given Jesus' righteousness so that everything that has ever, ever been true about Jesus Christ becomes true of every single person who puts their faith in him. That's wonderful news. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we are here today. We don't just come to church because that's what we do as Christians. We come to church because there's a gospel. There is good news that we have to celebrate. We must celebrate because it's just such good news. And so we come together as a church, and we sing songs together as a church. We sing songs to God about what he's done for us, and we sing songs to each other about God and what he's done for us. We say things like the Apostles' Creed together so we can actually hear one another saying those things. We don't just go through that because that's just what you do as Christians. We say those things so we can hear everybody else around us saying, yes, I believe this. I believe this about God. I believe this about Jesus. I believe this about the Holy Spirit. We believe that what he did actually it works for every single person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of, how, regardless of how much they've sinned. And we come together at church to celebrate the gospel. And in a few minutes, we're going to take communion together, and we're going to celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ again. This is what's on offer. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's what's on offer for you today. Death destroyed. Guilt eliminated. Shame covered up. By a God who loves you, by a God who acted first, by a God who did all this, because, even though it cost him absolutely everything, so that we could have, have him and he could have us. So to summarize what we've learned so far, Jesus is the divine king, which means he actually is God. He's the sovereign king, which means he has the authority in our lives to tell us what to do, and that's wonderful. And he's a servant king, which tells us that he has victory over our greatest enemy, which is our sin. And Jesus won that victory by taking our place and dying the death that we deserve to give us that victory. This is the love that he has for us. Now, it's one thing to say that Jesus is the king and to kind of get this from God's word, but it's actually another thing altogether, altogether to know that, that Jesus actually really wants us to know that he is the king. As we study Mark's gospel, we'll learn that Jesus is just actually not okay at all with us having the wrong idea about who he is. We don't get to decide who Jesus is. Maybe your opinion of who Jesus is is a combination of, of a bit from the Bible, a bit from what you've heard from church, a bit from what you remember from Sunday school, a bit about what popular culture says about Jesus, and just a mix, a mix of things. Actually, Jesus wants us to know who he is from his word. We don't get to pick and decide what we'd like to, to read or not. We don't get to pick and decide what, what, what parts of Jesus we'd like and what we don't. This is why we walk through books of the Bible, so we can see the, the whole testimony of Scripture. We can see everything that Jesus actually is. We don't get to go through uh, the Bible reading bit by bit and saying, I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I don't like this. And actually, as Tim Keller often says, the Bible should read us. The Bible should page through us saying, I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I don't like this. We should submit ourselves to God's word. And Jesus really wants us to know who he is. How has Jesus made himself known? He's taught us. He's taught us. 
in his word. In what he teaches his disciples, we take that for us. In what he takes his disciples through, we learn from that. Jesus is our teacher. Over and over again, we're told that he's a teacher. Actually, just in these 118 verses on five separate occasions, they refer to him as teacher. And then then at the beginning of Mark chapter 10, we're told that Jesus and his disciples were in the region of the Jordan, and crowds were gathering to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Mark is saying this is what Jesus typically did. He taught his disciples. Now, we can look at that from all parts of Mark's gospel, but let's, let's just hone in on this interaction between Jesus and the rich young man. And we'll see how warm and yet firm Jesus is in the way that he teaches us about himself. You see, this rich young man, he is the epitome of success. He's wealthy, he's got riches, he's got possessions. He's young, he's got his youth and his vitality. And he he lives a morally upright upright life. The the, The guy is a boy scout. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that question there, is a, this whole situation actually, is a really great example of the two-stage healing of the blind man. Like he gets, he's got a bit of an idea of what it means to have an eternal life, like he's doing all the right things. He, he's living a morally upright life. And yet he still knows that there's something lacking. He could sort of see what, it, what he was meant to be doing, but there's something lacking. And Jesus' response to him is to go and obey the commandments, keep the commandments, and he lists a few there. And typically, as as is typical with Jesus, this isn't all that Jesus has to say on the matter. Actually, what he's doing is he's teasing out a dialogue with this young man. And the young man, you can sense his disappointment. He says, yeah, I've been doing all of that. And this is where Jesus gets to the heart of what this young man needs to hear. He teaches him. And what we see here from Jesus' teaching is that he is both very warm and very resolved about what he has to teach this young man. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Did you see that in the text? Jesus looking at him loved him. He loved him so much that instead of saying, well, you're doing pretty well, mate. Come and follow me and you'll be able to tick the eternal life box. No, he, he loved him so much that he wasn't going to let him continue down on that path that he was traveling. Can you see how Jesus is both warm and firm? He's warm, he, he loves this young man, but he's firm, he's not going to let this man continue on without telling him the truth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. See, what we're getting here is the sum of all that we've been saying. The young man comes to Jesus with an expectation of who Jesus is. And on the one hand, Jesus corrects his expectations. And on the other hand, he far exceeds this young man's expectations. See, his expectation of Jesus is that Jesus would give him eternal life. He would give him eternal life and he wouldn't have to give up his greatest treasure. His greatest treasure was all of his stuff. And his his expectation was that Jesus, Jesus would never ask him to give up his greatest treasure. But Jesus says, the only way you can ever have eternal life is if I become your greatest treasure if you value me over all other things. So Jesus corrects this young man's assumption, but then he goes further to far exceed the young man's expectation. You see, this young man had great possessions, had many possessions, but they were earthly possessions. 
which means that, they, means that they were subject to rust, to fading, to mold, to decay, and to theft. Let's just think about this for a moment. This young man had many possessions, great possessions. Not sure what they were. I can imagine him entering his house each day going, man, isn't my house beautiful? Yeah, isn't my stuff lovely? He loved it when people came over and saw his stuff, saw everything they had, and they remarked, man, you must just, God must just love you. He's blessed you so much. You've got everything. But they were earthly possessions. And none of that man's earthly possessions currently exist right now. 2,000 years have gone by, and every single one of that man's possessions, everything he had, everything he treasured is now dust in the ground somewhere, buried, carried away by the wind, never to exist again. And this is how Jesus is, ex- is exceeding his expectations. The treasure that we have in this life seems great, but Jesus knows what's better than him. He exceeds his expectations by saying, if you sell all your stuff and give that money to the poor, where will you have treasure? treasure? You'll have treasure in heaven. And this young man is totally disappointed by that because he can't have it now. Jesus says, you'll have treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't touch it. Thieves can't get close to it. That young man went away disappointed. If he didn't go go away disappointed, that young man would be rich today still. His riches in heaven today still. You see, we might believe that by following Jesus, he's going to make us healthy and wealthy. We might believe that by following Jesus and, and that because of our obedience that he owes us, that we're putting him somehow in our debt. We might think that because we're following Jesus, then our life is going to be all sweet and everything's going to be work out fine and he's never going to let us walk through pain and suffering. But Jesus promises us no such thing. In fact, in this life, what he promises us is that if we're going to follow him, we must take up our cross. If we're going to follow him, we must become last and not first. If we're going to follow him, then we have to be like him, a servant to all. For Jesus, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, do we know who Jesus is? Do we know the Jesus that we're serving? Do we know the path and the way that we're following him down? Do we know that he wants us to bear the cross because he went to the cross? As we follow him along the way, do we know the path that we're going down? And do we know that the greatest expectations we could ever have of Jesus, he far exceeds those, by promising us treasure in heaven? That his plans for us are better than ours because he can see eternity in in his sight? You and I, we can only see what's ahead of us in the next few decades. Jesus can see our, our entire eternity. He can see the treasure that we have in, this, in, this, in, in, the, in the life to come. This is how he far exceeds our expectations. He, he saved us. He becomes our king, asks us to follow him, and he promises us treasure in the life to come. What's the treasure? It's actually knowing God. Coming face to face with God. That's the good news. That's what, we're going to, that's, that's what we're looking forward to in heaven. Heaven is going to be wonderful, not because... There's water slides and clouds and harps that we get to play whenever we feel like it. Heaven's going to be wonderful because Jesus is there. We actually get to see Jesus. And when we're going through tough times and and difficult times and difficult seasons, our prayers are laced with this fact. Jesus, I just want to see your face. I just want to know you. You see, Jesus' plans are so much better than our plans because he sees far beyond what this life holds. 
And when he opens our eyes, like those blind men, to see who we can, so we can see who he really is, we'll see that he is the king, the only king that is worth following, because he's actually God. He has authority in our lives, and he suffered and died to bring us to new life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that in you we have salvation. Thank you that by putting our faith in you, our record of debt is removed from us. Thank you that when we put our trust in you, Jesus, we know you're never going to bring that up again. You're never going to bring up our sin again. Because it's on you. It's already been dealt with. We don't have to pay, uh, uh, pay for our sin a second time because it's already been paid for by you, Jesus. Father, we, we thank you for sending your son into the world to, to die for us, to, to kill death, to eliminate guilt and to cover our shame. Jesus, we thank you for the good news that when we put our faith in you, when we put our trust in you, our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Never have to be seen again. And so, Jesus, may we have the right idea of who you are. May we think deeply and seriously about you. May we pour through your word and discover you more and more every single day. May we delight in you. May we have glad obedience in you, Lord. Father, for, the, for, for those of us who are struggling to make you our Lord, but not our Savior, Lord, uh, Lord, for those of us who are struggling to, to obey you, who are struggling to believe that you are worth obeying, would you warmly, gently, but firmly correct our hearts? Would you put us back on the right track? Would you, Holy Spirit, come and just direct us, lead us down the paths of your righteousness, lead us towards holiness, Lord? Father, for those of us who really enjoy doing what you, you tell us to do, because we believe that by doing that, we, we're somehow uh, earning your grace and, and being in control of our own salvation, Lord, would you help us to repent? Would you help us to have clear spiritual vision for our actual spiritual poverty and see that, yes, we are sinners, and we, are, we need to be saved. None of us have, has ever truly thought deeply enough about our sin. And yet at the same time, Lord, because of our faith in you, we are also called saints. Stumbling saints, no doubt. Saints that, that stuff up and screw up time and time again. But saints nonetheless, because of what you've done for us. So Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for everything that you've done for us on the cross. That you acted first to make us know who you are. And say, so, Jesus, we ask that you would make us believe in you, Lord. Make our hearts believe in you. Make our hearts believe in you as our Lord and our King. Make our hearts believe in you as our Savior and our only our way to remove sin from us, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life.
If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.